Before we get started, I wanted to quickly let you know that there are references to suicide in this episode. It's probably hard to understand this bit of audio. That's because it's a recording of a small show a long time ago. It's from a band called Zeo, one of the longest running bands in the genre. The show was in 1998, back when I was still listening to Carmen and DC Talk on cassette tapes. The next song is called A Thing of You. It's about a friend of mine who committed suicide about six months ago. He says this song is about a friend who committed suicide about six months ago. It's called To Think of You is to Treasure an Absent Memory. It's about a suicide matter and the fact that everybody in this room wakes up the same way every morning and we all look in the mirror and a lot of the time it's hard to, hard to make it through. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shame Core Records. Last episode, we talked about teachings about emotions in the evangelical church and how the suppression of emotions like anger and sadness then made Christian hardcore like a breath of fresh air to those of us who grew up in that culture. Today, we're going to talk about why we continue to follow those rules in our communities and what happens when the whole community, not just individuals, suppress feelings of grief and anger. How it impacts us not just psychologically, but politically as well. So then why are we talking about a song about suicide? Because a song like this, not only about suicide, but the grief that comes with it, breaks all the rules of evangelicalism. Initially, I was going to say that we never sang songs about death, but that's not true at all, actually. We sing songs all the time about Jesus' death. But how sad can you be about someone you know is going to come back in three days? Someone that you know is already alive right now. When it came to thinking about Jesus' death, I didn't feel sad, but I did feel an uncomfortable emotion. I felt guilt. I felt guilty that Jesus had to be punished for my sin. Guilt was an okay emotion to feel in church, but sadness somehow wasn't. And that's why I love this song by Zayo because it does talk about sadness and grief. It expresses grief. At one point in the song, the vocalist just screams, my heart broke over and over. And it's really powerful because it's coming from this deep place of sadness. The sort of thing that rarely saw the light of day in the church culture that I grew up in. I liked the song so much, I made DL listen to it with me. Well, let's just be clear. I'm like a pop punk person, not a hardcore person. I mentioned Blindside. I like Blindside, but that was it. So This song is from what some people consider the best metalcore record ever. This is Zayo. Mm-hmm. And they formed in 1993, which means in two years, they will have formed 30 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Did anybody in this band, like, kill somebody? 
No. Okay. This song is about a friend of his who suicided. Oh, no. I like the music. Yeah? Sort of. Wow. It's really sad now that you told me the backstory. I hope it's cathartic for him. Yeah, I was wondering, did you, thinking about growing Mm -hmm. up in the church, can you think of any, like, sad songs that you listened to or your parents played? You know, I can't, I mean, I can't really. I think, yeah. Yeah, why do you think there were not sad songs in CCM in the Christian music you grew up listening well, to? Well, because, and I'm speaking from, you know, experience here, people who are Christians, when they feel sad, at least how I grew up is like, well, that's not a feeling that's from God. So I need to cheer up pronto. So they would listen to like worship music to be happier. Right. Mm-hmm. And to like, especially if you grew up in the charismatic world, right. It's you to get the joy of the Lord and, and all that. Like worship was to get yourself to like an elevated emotional state where you're happy. Huh. I hadn't thought of that. That is a way of dealing with sadness. No, people listen to worship music when they're sad. That I yeah. know. I mean, I think we both had moms that went through difficult times and would blast Stephen Curtis Chapman. Like, I wonder how many moms did that. I'm not calling them out. I'm saying, like, maybe that's just, like, the standard. I mean, I think Amy Grant did that herself. Blasted Stephen Curtis Chapman. I'm sure she did. As a Christian wife with postpartum depression. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is one approach. Yeah, I mean, why would Christian music be sad? Like, the whole point of being a Christian in the United States is to, like, have a better life, you know? Yeah, that's really true. Here's the other thing. There's no protest music within Christianity. There's no sad songs. Like... It's kind of wild. Mm-hmm. And the more you think about it, the more you're like, wait a minute, why do all our worship songs have to be about like appeasing this God and that makes you feel happy? It's just kind of messed up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really uh, emotionally hampered the church in some important ways. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if I would have loved Zayo, you know, their music back when I was in my my punk days, but I would have really appreciated the attempt to be deep, you know? So even if I'm like, oh, that's a sad song and he's obviously sad, I would still be like, he's talking about real life stuff. You know what I mean? He's like talking about the real stuff. And I would have really appreciated that. Hey, my name is Will. I am in Texas and I am 34, which means that I turned 14 in 2000. Uh, which feels significant for this topic. I was dealing with a lot of what I now know was like anxiety and depression and um, kind of the effects of those on my ability to function in everyday life. And Christian metal kind of gave me a place where it was okay to feel 
uh, all of that like despair and disconnectedness that came with that. I was in a place where I kind of felt like everyone around me seemed to kind of have it together. And I kind of felt like the messages that I was getting from people around me kind of told me that I was just lazy and apathetic and kind of needed to just get over myself. I don't think anyone would have said that outright, but that's kind of how I felt. But this music kind of gave me a place where it was okay to feel those things and kind of gave me a place where I could navigate those feelings and kind of work through them. And that was a really big deal. Zayo and bands like them were breaking the church rules, expressing both grief and anger. But where do we get these rules from and how are they enforced? While sometimes there's clear teaching on emotions in the church, like I talked with Becky Castle Miller about last episode, sometimes it's like we just intuitively know this emotion isn't allowed here. But how is it that we know what's allowed and not allowed? Emotions that we have in our body happen in a social context and we get messages about those emotions. This is Dr. Hillary McBride speaking at my church a couple of years ago. She's a researcher, therapist, and author of Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, and perhaps most well-known for her work on the Liturgist podcast. We get feedback uh, when you're angry, you've got to go to your room. You gotta, you're very bad. You need to go away from me. And because we're wired for attachment and connection when we're in development, when our brains are developing, often we learn like, oh, to, to be close to the people who are caring for me, I got to lock this down. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shove it down as a way to get my relational needs met. She helped me understand that whether it's a family or church community, we will shut down the emotions that we know we're not allowed to express. So when we have those emotions come up, it, it uh, kind of triggers maybe this coping response that we've had to manage this other need, which is the relational attachment need. And we learn what to do with those emotions based on keeping our, ourselves connected to the people who determine if we belong or not. We want to belong in a family. We want to belong in a church. So we learn to lock down those feelings. It's a thing our body does called inhibitory emotion, which is when we're feeling something that we learned a long time ago was not okay to feel, and shame comes up or anxiety comes up because we're like, oh no, I'm experiencing something I shouldn't be experiencing. So if you had a message growing up that fear is bad, don't feel fear, then as soon as fear comes up, like so does the message, this is bad. And it's a really important task of our development, spiritually, psychologically, to at some point say, did I learn to be afraid of those things because they're actually bad? Or did I learn to be afraid of those things helped me to be connected to someone who is also afraid of those things? So this means it gets passed on from person to person. If my parents are scared of a certain emotion like sadness, then they're going to teach me to be scared of it, and I'm going to teach my kids to be scared of it. It'll get passed on from generation to generation and also throughout a community, which means that we actually miss out on experiencing that emotion in a healthy way. And most importantly, we miss out on the wisdom of that emotion. Emotions, like a lot of stuff in our world, come in a wave form. 
So they actually, we get these kind of little somatic cues in our body that tell us, oh, we're feeling something. And at that point, a lot of us have learned to shut off. So we don't even ride the wave till it comes down the other side. But if what we did is we paid attention to the, the cues in our body that were saying, oh, there's some sensation here. There's something, something to pay attention to. If we stay with those, it always comes down the other side. It's like a bell curve or a sine curve that our sensation in our body comes up and then comes down the other side. And it's after the intensity is crested, the innate wisdom of the emotion comes up after it's the peak of intensity has crested. And so anger will often say to us, you need to talk to that person. They can't keep treating you that way. We can take the wisdom that the anger said to us about that was a violation of your boundaries. Something needs to be talked about here. Or fear will say, maybe you need some more information about how you can keep safe. Or fear will say, why don't you go get a hug, right? Or why don't you take a few deep breaths? So if we're looking at flipping the switch um, in terms of how we experience emotions and doing it in healthy ways, it's actually by going into the body and mindfully being aware of any sensation that's moving in our body and staying with that until we feel this release come over us. And that is the great, the best time to act on an emotion is actually when it feels like the emotion has passed just a little bit. You get all of the wisdom that was there from the emotion, but without having to, to move out of a place of intensity that could hurt you or somebody else. What stuck with me was that emotions can actually give us wisdom. They tell us which direction to go. And this happens on a community level as well. So with that in mind, I talked with Dr. Sung Chan Ra, professor at North Park University and author of Prophetic Lament, as well as several other books. I asked him about what happens when a whole community closes itself off to certain emotions. But first, I had to ask him if he had any experience with heavy Christian music, because, you know, you never know. Back in the day, I was a big fan of Christian heavy metal. Okay. Right? But that's you yeah, know, what, 20, 30 years what ago. What did you like to listen to? Oh, like Res Band, which is kind of funny now because I, I, I know they're half their band because they live in Chicago. Okay, yeah. And they're all like 60 years old. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was it that appealed to you about that heavy metal? Oh, I was just I was a kid, you know, a high school kid and that was the that was the sound of the time. I actually yeah. started off in junior high school and high school with like secular heavy metal, like Ozzy Osbourne and uh Black Sabbath and Blue Oyster okay. Cult. Oh boy, those names bring back memories. <laughs> uh and then when I became a Christian, it was like, "Oh, you've got to find the Christian equivalent, the whole do you remember, I, I joke about the remember when they used to pass out the sounds like yeah uh-huh, those charts in youth group. Uh-huh. <laughs> right it's a, oh if you like you know black sabbath you will like res band well yeah well yeah but right. close enough you know I, i'll take that's it. really true like this is mostly teenagers that were listening to this but it really does speak to how musically we do want space to have room for anger and grief and I wondered, when you look at scripture, where do you see that in the Judeo-Christian tradition? Right. So the book I wrote on, on lament, Prophetic Lament, is a commentary in the Book of Lamentations. Mm-hmm. And that was just, you know, talk about angst and pain and suffering. Uh, not just lamentations. Again, there's questions about authorship, who wrote it and all of that stuff. Uh, but like Jeremiah, mm-hmm. you know, he's known as the weeping prophet, right? That's kind of his moniker. 
uh, and the idea of the Jeremiah is again lamentations, but as a lamenter, mm. crying over the the fallen city of Jerusalem, um, and you see this in is very much a historical part of the prophetic tradition, mm, right? Mm-hmm. The the prophets crying out on behalf of the people as well as on behalf of God mm. over the reality of human suffering. So you see that quite often. And, um, you know, in, in a sense, that comes out of much more of the Hebraic uh, Near Eastern tradition, mm. whereas some of the Western Empire traditions uh, tend to gravitate towards triumphalism, mm-hmm. right? The triumph and victory uh, of the Roman Empire mm. versus the um, the pain and suffering experienced by uh, Israel and God's people. So we tend to gravitate in the West towards this triumphalistic narrative that comes from mostly this Roman imperialistic ideas versus what you see quite often in the Old Testament, which is not so much triumphalism, but a lot of pain, a lot of angst. And so that's all over the Bible, I think, the mm-hmm. kind of the dealing with suffering, crying out to God, um, how long, O oh Lords, the, the how can this be, the woe is me's. That's a very common theme in, in the scripture. So then comparing that to current day white American evangelicalism, how do you see those triumphant narratives playing out culturally? The funniest example would be kind of the ironic usage of that in uh, the Lego movie, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you see everything is awesome, everything is cool. Right, you yeah. know, that's, that, I don't know who the writers were, but they were probably trying to describe how evangelical Christianity operates sometimes. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> you get the, the message that this kind of sanitized version mm-hmm. of, uh, of the world and, you know, everything's awesome, everything is cool. You know, it's it's going to be good, um, and there's there's not you know there's truth to that, of course. Mm-hmm. There's the the real sense of God is in control, and mm-hmm. God will bring healing, and God will bring hope. But we we kind of amplified it to such a point that it's become kind of trite and tropes mm-hmm. that you know make really no sense whatsoever to reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, in kind of popular culture. You know, even kind of popular culture has decided, yeah, that's not how that's what life works. Mm-hmm. But within evangelical Christianity, we kind of gravitate towards these models mm-hmm. where we think America was always great. America is mm-hmm. always perfect. America is, you know, the, the land of the free and home of the brave and our democracy is perfect. And clearly that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, hey, you know, even if we had slaves, we treated them nice. Uh, you know, even if we destroyed the Native American communities and committed genocide, you know, hey, at least they have casinos now. I mean, the, the narratives for that are pretty ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The, the kind of this, this, um, assumptions around American greatness, American exceptionalism, triumphalism and, as a part of that, the the history and the sociology and the politics of it getting kind of wiped away and actually not dealing with no, there's some messed upness mm-hmm. in our in our story, mm-hmm. uh, both on the American history side, but also the church history side of it as well. So I think we we tend to gravitate towards these triumphalistic narratives, and in the process of doing that we end up minimizing some of the suffering that people have experienced. So what happens to a church that doesn't make room for lament or angst? Yeah, I mean, and this is Brueggemann, right? Brueggemann says that what happens to a church that loses the capacity to lament, it loses its sense of injustice and the cry for justice. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is something that we've seen. We've seen within American evangelical circles the inability to even use the word justice these days. <laughs> Ten years ago, maybe, people said, oh, stop using the word social justice. That's a secular thing. No, that's what the Bible does. But th- that's where our problem with like our inability to actually engage 
suffering and lament means why, why do we need justice when we don't have injustice? And so this denial of injustice, which is what denial of lament is, the denial of pain and suffering, again, denial of injustice, denial of lament, that leads to, well, we don't need justice then. You know, why would America need social justice from the church? Because America is good and doesn't have social injustice. No, if we were to actually lament reality, and let's talk about reality, there was slavery. There was genocide of the native population. There was mm -hmm. children put into prisons and cages on the border. There was a Japanese internment. These are not like mythological stories. These are actual facts. Right. And so mm -hmm. lament is required when you deal with the facts. Uh, mm -hmm. If you don't, if you push away these facts, then you don't have to lament. And you don't have to lament if you don't acknowledge injustice. So that capacity, that, that genetic capability or that social mm -hmm. capability to say there is sin and brokenness in the world, in our systems and structures, in our in our republic, in our politics, in our history, um, that should lead us to lament. But if you deny all of that, then nobody feels the need to lament anymore. What you're putting together here is the emotional life of the church and the emotional kind of culture in the church directly impacts how we engage politically. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this, in some extent, we have a, we have developed an, an American evangelical church that has kind of this emotional, you know, disability, you know, in many ways. And in fact, it's, it's kind of interesting that, um, when we are called to confront brokenness, like emotionally stable people should do, <laughs> this is what emotional stability and emotional maturity looks like. You see brokenness, you deal with it. So hopefully as a maturing church, we should say, we've got some brokenness. We better deal with it because when we were five years old, we didn't deal with it. We just threw a temper tantrum versus an emotionally mature person that actually says, there's clearly brokenness in our society. There's clearly a, a need for lament. You know, you can't deny 400,000 people that have died of COVID and just pretend that it didn't happen. That's an emotional uh, immaturity. And emotional maturity recognizes there's joy in the world. There's exceptional triumphal moments we can have, but there's also a whole bunch of suffering in the world. There's also a whole lot of injustice in the world. And to be emotionally, spiritually mature means we deal with those realities. I, I teach at State for Correctional Center, which is a max security prison right here outside of Chicago. And um, I lost two of my students to COVID. And this was very early on. This was in March of last year. Uh, and the reason was that, you know, black and brown bodies were the first and most adversely hit because of COVID. And still to this day, the most adversely hit communities are black and brown communities. And prison is definitely one of those places. And for obvious reasons, lack of medical care, you can't really segregate out. This was early in the pandemic. You didn't really know what was going on. And so two of my students died. Mm. And so I don't have the privilege to say the, the pandemic is a hoax. I got to deal with that reality. No, this is a, yeah. this is a real thing. They didn't get the healthcare they needed, uh, yeah. so that's yeah. what we got to say. Okay, come on, let's deal with reality here. Let's deal with the facts here. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Really sad to hear that, and and just sad right now to to think about four hundred thousand lives have been lost. I subscribe to folks on the family's emails just to see <laughs> what's going on. Their most recent one was this pandemic is terrible. People are losing jobs. Marriages are stressed. Families are stressed. It didn't say anything about sickness or death, though. That's when we got to go back to some of these practices that we lost, like lament. 
Lament reminds us mm-hmm. of things that we don't want to hear. And American churches are so comfortable in our mm-hmm. comfort and so comfortable in our uh, in our in our sense of exceptionalism, triumphalism, mm-hmm. that we don't want these disruptive messages to 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 be uh, to be spoken, and 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 that's led us to the where we are today. A church that doesn't allow space to share sorrow, to share grief, to share anger, is going to push out or silence yeah. those people that have experienced that. So, you know, I know people that have been, I know people of color that have been in white churches that they're like, yeah, like everybody thinks I'm, I'm the great black guy, but they, there's no room for me to share what my experience actually right. is. Right. Right. Um, right. And it seems like without that really important information that it is then going to be hard for us to have an accurate view of the world and the realities that are going on. This is the burden that African-Americans carry. They have to, you know, kind of play this double load. Uh, The other person Mm -hmm. that wrote wonderfully on this is Shanika Walker-Barnes, who's a therapist, counselor, professor, Mm -hmm. seminary professor in, in, uh, in Atlanta, where she writes about this burden that women of color carry as like trying to be strong or have to be strong and have to be, you know, the person that takes care of everybody else. And that burden has created higher rates of hypertension, higher rates of uh, breast cancer, higher rates of, you know, premature, you know, all this, all the signs of, of health that's usually stress related, black women are carrying. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Curtis Evans at University of Chicago wrote a book called The Burden of Black Religion, that black churches also carry this kind of burden. Um, and the mo- uh, people of color, women of color in particular, ethnic communities are carrying exactly the burden you're describing. We have to acknowledge that these mm-hmm. stresses are a reality for people of color, again, specifically women of color. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. where we, we've got to actually deal with that, that reality as well. An image I'm imagining, these are people that are pushed to the corners of the church, the back corners. And I was thinking about in your book, you talk about what are the voices that are centered in Lamentations. I thought maybe you could talk about that and and what the implications would be today. Yeah, so uh, the background is that I was looking at the book of Lamentations and I was looking at the authorship. Uh, So typically it's been attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. For historical reasons, Jeremiah was probably the only person who could read or write that was left in Jerusalem because the exile occurred. Mm. They took most of the literate, if not all of the literate away. Jeremiah, we know historically, was allowed to stay in Jerusalem. But the style of writing in Lamentations is so different from Jeremiah. Most uh, exegetes have said, no, we don't think it's the same guy. Uh, So my response to that has been, well, Jeremiah is probably the one that wrote down the words because he probably would have been the only literal person left in Jerusalem. But they're not his words. And you actually notice this. It's very feminine. The Lamentations is very feminine. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I argue in my book that Lamentations is probably the most feminine book of the Bible, you know, more than Esther and Ruth, because Jeremiah is writing down the words of the women who have lost their husbands, who have lost their children, lost their parents, uh, who lost their home and lost everything and have no thought of rebuilding because the city is so devastated. So it's very much the voices of the widows and the orphans that are heard in the Book of Lamentations. And what I speak about is there are times, especially in places of suffering and and pain and, and, and struggle, that it's not time for the learned, articulate, literate person to speak. It's not that time. It's not time for the Jeremiahs to speak. It's not time for the, the king of Israel to speak. It's not time for the prophets and the priests and the leaders to speak. It's time for the women and children. 
It's time for those who have been hurt the most, for their voices to be uh, raised up. And so I think right now we probably have too many experts, myself included, who are talking too much, to be honest with you. And we really need to hear appropriately from those that have been hurt the most. And those are the voices that we have tended to marginalize. Take the example of Jeremiah. Jeremiah shut his mouth and said, it's not time for me to talk. It's time to hear the voices. We got to hear from the Breonna Taylors. We got to hear from the Ahmad Arberries. We got to hear from uh, George Floyd and their families and the communities that suffered the most because of their deaths. Yeah, I love that. We can follow in Jeremiah's footsteps, or allegedly Jeremiah's <laughs> footsteps in that. Yeah. My last question, what would current examples look like? I think it is, again, going back and listening to those who have suffered the most. So this is uh, right on the heels of um, Michael Brown's death. And actually, Eric Garner is not long after Michael Brown's death. Uh, about 50 Christian leaders gathered in St. Louis, in, in Ferguson. And they were denominational heads and seminary presidents and kind of top, you know, leaders that, you know, we would recognize in, in Christian circles. Uh, and we spent a couple of days. Uh, and at the end of that time period, we we're ta- thinking about strategizing. What can we do as a community? You know, typical, typical things to do. You know, you put things on whiteboard and you put things on post-it notes and all of that stuff. Uh, but as we're in this last session, we're brainstorming for how we're going to fix the problem uh, of race relations in America. Everybody's phones goes off and, and everybody's checking their phones. And we're all looking at each other because we all got the same text and notification that uh, there was a no indictment on the killers of Eric Gardner. And uh, and now all of us are looking at this. And I'm seeing this and everybody's like in shock, obviously. And, you know, all these plans that we had made that are all around this conference room, they all seem pretty useless at that point because of this kind of tra- another added salt to the open wound of this tragedy. Um, and I remember most of us were, you know, older leaders, 50, 60, 70 years old. But there was one young leader. He was in his 20s. He was a young African-American man who attended this gathering. And uh, he was actually, ironically, kind of the physique of Michael Brown. He was about six foot four, 300 pounds. And he leaves the room. And we're in this room still trying to figure things out. And you hear him crying and weeping and wailing and screaming at the top of his lungs in the other room. And I remember very vividly, um, there were four older African-American women there. And they were, you know, pastors and denominational leaders. But they get up and they, and they, go, to the, uh, they go to him. And then the rest of us follow. And there was this incredible moment of lament where this young black man who represented in many ways what was going on. He was the Michael Brown. He was the Eric Garner. And he's weeping and he's wailing and he's lamenting this pain. You know, he's saying they had video. How could they not, you know, even go to trial on this? This is such an injustice. And he says, I remember just tragic. How, why would I bring children into a world that treats me like this, treats my, would treat my children like this? And it was the four older black women, the, the mothers and the grandmothers, who surrounded him, physically surrounded him to protect him spiritually. And they were weeping and wailing alongside and encouraging him. And it was this mm-hmm. incredible moment of lament that centered the cries of the young black man, but surrounded by the prayers and support of the older black women and then the rest of us surrounded them. And that moment of lament still kind of, in a good way, haunts me to say that's, that's something the church needs to do, to center that voice of that young black man who has suffered so much and was living under this oppression, to surround with his family, his 
people that would have been his mother and his grandmother, and then for us to surround them and to, in many ways, commit to say, we're not going to let this moment pass. We're going to see this through. And so I think we're missing those spiritual, powerful moments of lament that actually can shift our paradigms, move our assumptions, uproot our dysfunctional narratives, shake the very foundations of our emotional immaturity. Uh, those are the moments of lament that we're missing. And maybe that's why we keep going down the path that we seem to be going down. When we avoid and suppress uncomfortable feelings like sadness and anger and grief and lament, we aren't going to be taking the actions that we need to take, especially when it comes to caring for the most vulnerable in our communities. We're not going to take steps towards justice. Christian Hardcore made room to become a little more familiar with some of these emotions. However, this was a genre founded mostly by white evangelical youth, And so it didn't have the framework to indict the oppressive systems in the world and turn the anger and sadness towards those. Instead, the anger and sadness got turned inward. I got a chance to talk to Dr. Joel Harrison, a professor of religion, about this trend in Christian alternative music. He's currently working on a project that's analyzing the underground Christian music scene of the 90s and 2000s through social theory and political theology. I asked him why he thought this genre of punk and hardcore, which had historically criticized systems like capitalism, was so easily turned around to focus all that anger on an individual. It's not as though the incorporation of religion or a different kind of lyrical writing style is totally, you know, anathema to punk in general, um, you know, the hard, hardcore especially, I think, got pushed to such a, uh, an extreme, I mean, the anarchy of, of punk really allowed for it to take on whatever meaning people wanted it to mean. So there's that aspect of it. But then I think that there's also some, uh, some, some resonances with the, kind of the honesty of punk, right? This general ethos that punk is supposed to reflect um, honestly how you feel about the world. And if how you feel about the world is that it's fucked up, not because of systems, but because of individual sin, then it's, you know, that's going to get turned inward. As I've been kind of like re-listening to so much of this music over the last year or so, I mean, the, the band that really sticks out to me, not a hardcore band, you know, a skate punk band, but Slick Shoes, their first record, every song is like, I am nothing. I am awful. Why do you love me? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, that's every that's every song. Oh, and then, um, you know, an anti-abortion track like the one actual hardcore punk song that's on that record that's like emulating seven seconds is an anti-abortion track we can get into that later (laughs) so what happens when you take everything that's wrong with the world and there's no one to blame but yourself join us for the next episode when i talk with irish poet padre gotuma This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. 
Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find all the links to those in the description of this episode. You can support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. We've talked about things like Brio Magazine, WoW 1999, and a lot of other throwbacks to evangelical culture. Deal's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening.